You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. I'm going to do something a little bit different today. Instead of having you all stand and turn to a passage, I'm going to have you stay seated since we're going to be dealing with all of the passage, and I only have a little bit of time. So if you'll turn to Nehemiah chapter 9, Nehemiah chapter 9, uh, our main text, I guess you could say, would be verses 5 through 16. So to begin with this message, I'm going to start with a little bit of, um, I guess you could say, some sports trivia. As, you, as many of you know, uh, the Thunder used to be a great team, and I'm a huge Thunder fan. So I'm going to start with a story. Uh, up 3-1 to one in the Western Conference Finals, the Thunder had a comfortable lead over the Golden State Warriors. By all appearances, this series was wrapped up. Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook were playing great basketball, and their teammates were all healthy. Nothing could go wrong, right? I mean, nothing. Well, unfortunately for me and every other Thunder fan ever, everything went wrong. Not only did they blow their 3-1 lead over the Warriors, Kevin Durant also left the next year to play for the same team that beat them. As a way to compensate for the loss of Durant, Oklahoma City brought in Paul George from Indiana. Um, If any of you have watched the news recently, this is the same Paul George that asked to be traded to the LA Clippers. Now, the Thunder have traded Russell Westbrook to the Rockets, and in a matter of a few years, uh, the Thunder went from being title contenders to rebuilding their entire team. In our passage here in Nehemiah, Israel's in the same boat. Once a fierce nation who served God and was therefore protected, is now a nation who's returning from captivity, looking to rebuild. How could this be? How could a nation as powerful as Israel under the leadership of David be taken taken captive and then left with almost nothing? I would like to submit to you that the root of this problem was most likely unthankfulness. They had taken for granted God's blessings and had decided to do their own thing. At this point in the nation's history, the children of Israel are captives to the Babylonians. They had, returned, they had turned their backs on God, and God had allowed the Babylonians to come and ransack Jerusalem. After roughly 70 years of serving the Babylonians, the Jews were given a chance to leave Babylon and return to Jerusalem. However, only a handful of these Jews returned back to the Promised Land to restore the temple. Fast forward almost 100 years, and we find that the walls are still in disarray. As we know from Pastor's series called Arise and Build, God uh, called Nehemiah out of Babylon to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. After nearly 150 years since the Israelites had been taken captive, the walls surrounding Israel were finally rebuilt. In chapter 9, the Israelites had completed the wall and just finished a week-long celebration called the Feast of the Tabernacle. On each of the days of the Feast of the Tabernacle, they were to make a feast and make an offering to the Lord. After seven days of feasting, the eighth day was a very somber occasion where they would confess their sins to God. During this week, the Israelites would dwell in booths or tabernacles that were made out of branches or trees. While those seven days were filled with joy and feasts, on the last day, as I mentioned, the people would come together and the book of the law would be read for one quarter of the day. Another quarter of the day would be dedicated to the people confessing their sins to God. It's here where we pick up our reading. In verse 5, the Levites stand before the people and begin to pray to God. This isn't our typical prayer, though. Instead of asking God to give them things, they begin rehearsing the numerous things God has already done for them. 
First off, they recalled that Israel was a chosen nation. They were chosen out by God to represent him. Look with me at verse 7. The Bible says, Thou art the Lord the God who didst choose Abraham, Abram and brought his him, broughtest him forth out of Ur of the Chaldees and gavest him the name of Abraham. This verse is pretty cool to me, and I, I really enjoy this because I see this a lot like the school playground. Um, more importantly, I still remember playing dodgeball. Growing up, I loved sports, and it didn't matter what kind of sport it was. It, if it involved a ball or some sort of physical exertion, I was right in the middle of it ready to play. Unfortunately for me, I'm very competitive, so I always tried to play with the older kids. This was okay with me until it came time to pick teams. I was fast, but I was never very strong. I know you look at me now and think to yourself, how could this be? This is obviously a fine specimen and an incredibly strong man. But I assure you, I was never the strongest growing up. I could never throw a dodgeball hard enough to be dangerous and could never generate enough power to lay someone out, just like some other kids could. This limitation of mine put me at a great disadvantage when it came to pick teams. No one wanted to be picked last, and I was no exception. It was like letting everyone know that you were the worst player ever. Fortunately for me, I could catch the ball pretty good, so I was usually picked somewhere in the middle of the pack. However, as I got older and became one of the older kids and continued to increase my dodgeball throwing skills, I would occasionally get picked first. Nothing felt better than getting picked first. If you were picked first next to the captain, you were the best player. Everybody wanted to be number one. In verse 7, God chose Abraham, and by extension, Israel, to represent him. In essence, God was saying, Israel, out of every, any nation on the planet, I want you to be on my team. God could have chosen anyone out of the millions of people on earth, but God chose Abraham, and by extension, Israel, to be his people. As a result of being God's chosen people, Israel had a greater chance for success than any other nation had. They were God's number one pick. Next, not only were they uh, God's chosen people, but they were also a protected nation. Let's read verses, verse 11. It's, the Bible says, And thou didst divide the sea before them, so that they went through the midst of the sea on, dry, on the dry land. And their persecutors thou threwest into the deeps, as a stone into the mighty waters. As we can see from this verse, God protected Israel mightily. In verse 11, the Israelites were attempting to flee the, from the Egyptians who had oppressed them for over 400 years. As they made their exodus across the Egyptian land, Pharaoh's heart became hardened as he thought about all the slaves he had just lost. Consumed with anger, he commanded his army to pursue the Israelites and capture them no matter what the cost was. As the Israelites stood facing the Red Sea, wondering how they would get across, the people began to notice a large cloud of dust beginning to form behind them. It didn't take them long before they realized who was following. The Egyptians were pursuing. As they faced this great opposition, Moses stretched his staff out over the water, and with astonishment, the children of Israel saw the waters recede to create a walkway to the other side. The children of Israel did not waste any time getting to the other side. However, the Egyptians were still closing in fast. As soon as the last Israelite was across the water, the waters collapsed, burying the Egyptians under tons of rushing water. This was a real-life account that the children of Israel still rehearsed here in Nehemiah chapter 9. Not only did God protect them from their enemies, he also protected them from their hunger, the thirst, and the elements. Look with me at verse 15. Um, yeah, Nehemiah 9.15. And it says, Yea, forty years didst thou sustain them in the wilderness, so that they lacked nothing. Their clothes waxed not old, and their feet swelled not. After crossing the Red Sea, the Israelites were faced with the task of crossing the wilderness. In Exodus 12.35-36, 
we find that the Egyptians actually paid the Israelites to leave their land. Under the providence of God, the Israelites were given gold, silver, and clothes for their journey. These slaves were actually getting paid to leave their land. This is amazing to me. But even with these gifts that the Egyptians had given them, there was absolutely no way a nation of this size would be able to, be la- would it would be able to last 40 years in the wilderness. Now, as a boy who loved to play outside, my parents found out very quickly that it didn't take me long to go through clothes. I'd constantly put holes in my pants, and I would either tear or dirtify my shirts until they were unwearable. The children of Israel walked around in a wasteland for 40 years, and the Bible tells us that their clothes never grew old. According to the Bible, they had nearly indestructible clothes, which would be an awesome superpower in my opinion. Not only that, but the Bible says that he provided for them with food and water. In verse 21, the Bible says that God sustained them. We know from other sections of scripture that God provided them with, male, with, with manna and with quail. The Israelites lacked nothing. This doesn't mean that the Israelites never complained about what they had or never wanted anything else, but it does mean that all of their physical needs were taken care of. Next, we see that Israel was a love nation. Look with me in verse 13 and 14. Thou camest down also upon Mount Sinai, and spakest with them from heaven, and gavest them right judgments and true laws, good statutes and commandments, and madest known unto them thy holy Sabbath, and commandest them precepts, statutes, and laws by the hand of Moses thy servant. These verses may seem a little weird when we're talking about God's love for his people, but I believe if we actually look at them, they showcase God's love perfectly. Now, I'd like to take a moment and say that I have never raised a child, and I don't know how difficult that is, but I have been a kid before. And one of the most annoying things about being a child are all the rules that my parents placed on me. It seemed like no matter what I wanted to do or what fun I wanted to have, my parents probably had a rule to keep me from doing it. One of these rules was, you will not participate in any sports activity if it lands on a church night. I thought this was one of the dumbest rules ever. As I mentioned earlier, I love sports and was heavily involved with them. I started playing baseball when I was four and played up until the ninth grade, and we would practice on Monday, Thursday, and Friday, and then have a game on Saturday. This was a great schedule for us, and my parents were all about me being involved in sports. However, the weather in Oklahoma is spontaneous and very cruel. Every once in a while, a Saturday would roll around, and along with it, a downpour of rain. I despised rain as a kid. Any fun I planned on having for the day was often put on hold until the rain would stop. Although I didn't like rain any day of the week, rain on Saturday was just the worst. Not only would it cancel my baseball game, but the people in charge would often reschedule the game on a Wednesday night, the same time as church. So when Wednesday would come around, I would beg my mom to let me go to the game instead of church, but my cold-hearted mother would always give the same response. Go ask your dad. <laughs> to make a long story short, I never went, once went to a baseball game that interfered with our church attendance. As I grew older, I had be, begun to see the value of the rules that my parents placed on me. As a result of that particular rule, I realized that there's more to life than a game. I learned that God and his people are more important than being able to hit a ball with a stick. And since my parents gave such distinct rules and then kept them, I grew up in an environment where there was structure and stability. Eventually, I grew to the point that I was thankful for their rules, and I finally realized that they gave me rules not to crush my fun, but rather but because they loved me and wanted to protect me. The same is true in the verses that we just read. God did not want to give the children, the, the children of Israel rules to obey because he wanted them to suffer. Rather, he gave them rules so that they could live a long and prosperous life. 
Without rules and leadership, the children of Israel would have self-destructed a long time ago. Even though God set up very clear rules, he was not looking for every mess up as a chance to punish Israel either. Look with me at verse 18. It says, Yea, when they, made, when they had made them a molten calf, and said, This is thy God that brought thee up out of Egypt, and had wrought great provocations, yet thou in thy manifold mercies forsookest them not in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud departed not from them by day to lead them in the way, neither the pillar of fire by night to show them the light and the way wherein they should go. Thou gavest also thy good spirit to instruct them, and withheldest not thy manna from their mouth, and gavest them water for their thirst. Even after the children of Israel had created an image and attributed all the victories that God had won for them to it, he still continued to provide for them. God genuinely loved his people. If we continue reading, we see that Israel was a privileged nation as well. All throughout this passage, we find promises that God has made to Israel and then has fulfilled. Back in Genesis 28, verses 10 through 15, we find God giving promises to Jacob, his name later turned to Israel. First, in uh, verse 13, God promises to give Israel the land of Canaan. In verse 14, he promises that Israel will be a great nation. And finally, in verse 15, he promises that he will not leave Israel until he has brought them back into the place which he promised them. If we look back to Nehemiah chapter 9, we will find that God fulfilled every promise he ever gave to Jacob. In the first part of verse 23, the Bible says that God multiplied the Israelites' children as the stars of the heaven. This is a fulfillment of the promise given in Genesis 28, verse 14. In the next verse, the Bible tells us that the Israelites possessed the land of Canaan, just like God said they would. And in verse 19 through 21, the Levites recall that God never once forsook his people while they were in the wilderness. All throughout this passage, we find real-life accounts of God doing things for Israel that other nations could only dream of. They were privileged. Lastly, despite seeing God miraculously provide and sustain them, the Levites recall that Israel still deliberately sinned against God. All throughout this passage, we find a vicious cycle of rebellion. Israel rebels against God. God is long-suffering with Israel. God corrects Israel. Israel returns to God, and then the cycle starts all over again. The book of Nehemiah was written after the time of Judges, so Israel had seen the results of living a life as God's people apart from God. They knew, that the, they knew the trouble it caused, yet still they continued to rebel. At this point in the nation's history, they had returned to God with repentant hearts. However, they were, still reaping, they were still reaping the consequences of their rebellion. Even though they were living in the land that, got, that was promised to them by God, they still had to pay taxes to the Babylonians as a result of their disobedience. It is very natural at this point for us to get frustrated with Israel. I mean, after all, if anyone was going to succeed as a nation would have had to be them, right? They were chosen by God. They were protected by God. They had even seen God provide for them in ways we could only dream of. However, if we truly examine our lives, we may find that we aren't as different from the Israelites as we may first think. First, notice we too are chosen by God. This statement does not mean that we believe in predestination. Rather, it means that we've come to him in, by faith and we've acknowledged our guilt before him and he has chosen to save us. In Romans 10.13, the Bible says that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The Bible makes it very clear that the offer of salvation is open to anyone who is willing to humble themselves before God and fully accept what he did on the cross for their salvation. Now, God didn't have to save you. He was not placed under some restriction that said you have to save them if they come to you. 
It was a free will choice that he, he chose to come and die for us, and so he's chosen to save us. But that does not mean that he's chosen specific ones of you to enter into heaven, while some of us, he says, eh, you can fight for yourselves. God will willingly, as I mentioned earlier, God will willingly save anyone who comes to him. If you're saved tonight, you are a child of God. The Spirit of God has come in and dwelled you, and you are now supposed to represent Christ to the rest of the world. In Matthew 5, Jesus is taking time to teach his disciples about the Christian life. In verses 14 through 16, Jesus uses the illustration of light to try to convey the job of a follower of Christ. He tells them that they are the light of the world, that they are displaying God to the rest of the world. Since we are saved, we have no choice but to be light. Christ indwells us. Jesus did not tell them, you can be light if you do this, or you may be light if you act this way. He said, ye are the light. Jesus has chosen us as Christians to represent him to the world. Second, we're a protected people. In John chapter 10, Jesus gives the parable of the good shepherd. He tries to explain to the Jews that anyone who places themselves in his care will be protected from true danger. If we are saved, there is nothing that can remove us from God's protection. In verses 28 through 29, Jesus says, And I give unto them, referring to those who have accepted Christ as their Savior, eternal life. And they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. This is a very encouraging truth. The all-powerful creator of the universe holds you as his child in his hand, and there, there, will be, there will never be anything that can remove you from his protection. If you have placed your trust in him as your savior, there's nothing you can do, there's nothing you can think, and there's nothing that anyone else can do that can take your soul out of God's care. While it's true that there's nothing that can take you away from God's standing, or your standing in front of God as his child, your fellowship with God can be broken if you do not continually maintain your walk with God. Sin does not take you out of God's family, but it does create a rift between you and the Lord. Just because our eternal standing with God cannot be compromised does not mean that our, does not mean that our walk with God cannot be compromised by sin. We must be sure not to let sin break our fellowship between us and God. Be sure to spend adequate time with God, strengthening your walk with him, or else we too may find ourselves in the place that uh, the Israelites were here in Nehemiah. Not only does God protect his children from eternal separation, but he also promises to provide for their needs as well. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus has taken his disciples aside and is instructing them on how to live the Christian life. He's gone through the Beatitudes and has given them a multitude of instructions and guidelines to follow. However, in the middle of his sermon, he takes time to teach them about worry. This may seem strange, since if anyone should be carefree, it should be those that are closest to the man who can do anything. But we have to keep in mind um, that these disciples had left everything to follow Jesus. We know from other sections of the scriptures that some of these disciples were married, and they even had families. These men had left their steady jobs and had brought their families on the belief that Jesus would be able to take care of them. Knowing that these men needed some lessons on worry, Jesus attempts to calm some of his disciples' worries by reminding them about how much he cares for them. He tells them that he will provide for their hunger. In verse 26, he reminds them that he sustains the birds of the sky. He says that they take no thought of where their food is going to come from. They don't worry about storing up their food. They don't lay awake at night wondering where their food is going to come from. He reminds them that God supplies what they need. He then reminds them that God cares for his disciples way more than he does for any bird that he feeds. The same is true in our lives as well. If we will take God and put him first in our lives, he promises that he will take care of every need that we have. 
Later in the chapter, he promises to clothe them as well. This is just another way that God shows his care for his children. These promises do not mean that we will have the newest clothes ever or an overabundance of food, but God does say that if we follow him wholeheartedly, he will supply for all of our needs. I think we would all agree that reading through the Bible that we are loved people. It'd be hard to read through the Bible and determine that God does not care for us. Time and time again, we find examples of him loving for us. Just like the Israelites, God has given us laws to live by and a great leader to follow. God has given us law... God has given us his word in the form of the Bible to govern our lives. He does not give us these rules to ruin our joy as Christians. Rather, he places these restrictions on us so that we can experience true joy. Even though he has given his word, I fear that many of us, myself included, sometimes do not take the adequate time to search through God's uh, word for his rules, let alone discipline ourselves to live by them. God's word is supposed to change the way that you live. Just as a speed limit sign should affect how fast you drive, God's word should affect the way you live. One day, we will all have to give an account for our lives and tell God how we live by his rules. Oftentimes, we'll use the excuse of ignorance to escape punishment, whether it be by our co-workers or or any other authority we may have over us. However, God has supplied us with all the tools necessary to please him. There's no excuse for not knowing what he expects for us. Just as Israel had a great leader in Moses, we also have a great spiritual leader in Pastor Jet. The amount of care and time he puts into loving this church is incredible. He is always doing something for the benefit of the church. God has used Pastor Jack great in a great way in Stillwater, and I believe he wants to do the same thing here. One of the only things that could potentially stop him is, first and foremost, his walk with the Lord. That's the greatest factor in his success as a man of God. The only other thing that could hinder his ministry would be us as members of Eastside Baptist Church. This is not supposed to be a, you're doing a terrible job point. But rather, it's supposed to be, you are doing a really good job, but there's some areas that we could do better. I believe that a case could be made that a leader is only as effective at leading as his followers are at following. Take any great leader in history. Any success that they had at leading came from others following. Take Moses, for example. Imagine if Moses had began to lead the children of Israel through the wilderness, but they wouldn't move. He would lead one way, they would go the other He would start going east, and they would sit down in the sand and play tic-tac-toe. Moses probably would never have gone down in history as one of the greatest leaders if the Israelites didn't follow. Does this mean that they followed perfectly? Well, as we see from Scripture, not even close. They spent 40 years in the wilderness because they decided not to trust the leadership that God has given them. But eventually, they ended up obeying and making it to the promised land. The application for this truth could go in many directions, and I will let you apply it as you see fit but I'd like to make the application in the way of outreach. I don't know if you've noticed or not, but we've had a lot of sermons with applications about outreach. Pastor has a vision for our church and really wants us to see see us grow in the area of outreach. This vision is not solely on seeing us grow as a church and see our church full, although that is a great side product of witnessing, but rather, as a shepherd of this church, he wants to see you live the Christian life to the fullest. Jesus has commanded each of his children to go and to bring forth fruit. It's a commandment that we're supposed to fulfill. If we do not fulfill this commandment, we are deliberately sinning against God. So let's get on board and follow the leadership that God has given us, unlike the children of Israel, and continue to follow Pastor Jet. Not only does God love us by giving us guidance, his love for us never runs out either. In Romans 8, 38 through 49, it says, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, 
nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, if you don't notice, that was a very long list of things that could try and separate us from Christ. But the great truth is that God's love for you will be the same for you will be the same today as it will be forever. There's nothing that can separate you from God's perfect love. Lastly, I believe we could draw a parallel between us and the Israelites is that we are a privileged people. We are given promises that no one else on earth can hold to. In Hebrews 13:5, the Bible says that God will never leave us nor forsake us. In the midst of our troubles and difficulties, God is there to strengthen and to guide us. Wherever we turn our backs on him, he's still waiting there, waiting to re- uh, waiting for us to return to him. God will never leave you, and there's another pro- that's another promise that he's given to us. Another promise is the promise of heaven. In John 14, 1 through 4, he tells us, his disciples, that he's going to prepare a place for them in heaven so that one day they can be reunited with him. This promise is true for us as well. Jesus is going to come back for all of his children and bring us back into fellowship with the Father. Yet I fear, despite these many blessings, it's easy for us to become unthankful for everything that Christ has done for us. It's easy for us to be only concerned about ourselves and our desires. Many Christians will go through their lives with the blessings of God and never take time to thank him for them, let alone let his blessings motivate them to do anything for him. How silly is it that we can go through our lives expecting God's blessings to be upon us no matter what we do, yet when they're taken away, we feel as if we've been done a great injustice. So to close, I'm going to leave you with three commandments that God has given to us as Christians, and I implore you to let his mercies and his graces and all of his blessings motivate you to serve him. The first one being our love for God. In Matthew chapter 22, verses 35 through 38, a lawyer comes to Christ and asks him what the greatest commandment is, to which Jesus responds, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. So I ask you tonight, how's your love for God? Do you spend adequate time with God through his word and in prayer? Are you fully surrendered to his will? Are you following his instructions to the fullest? Do you truly love God as you should? My next question would be this. Do you truly love others the way that you're supposed to? Jesus not only gave the lawyer the greatest commandment, he also gave him the second greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. This one can be hard too, but if you're walking with God as you should, God's love for others will show through your life. So I ask you, have you been doing in your love for others? Do others see the love of Christ in you? Do they want to spend time with you in fellowship because they know that you genuinely care for them? How's your love for God? If your love for God is correct, then your love for others will follow suit. Lastly, I ask, how are you doing at making disciples? Jesus' last command is to go and to teach all nations. How are you, are you continually looking for opportunities to share the gospel and different ways to invite others to church? If you have a genuine walk with the Lord and a genuine care for others, then this commandment should come naturally to you. So, to close, I would like to say God has given us so much, how could we not simply obey him? If God, being who he is, is not enough, then let the blessings of God, then let the blessings God has given you motivate you to serve him. Don't allow temporal things like sports, hobbies, or even work keep you from serving God to the fullest. He's done so much for you, how could we not do more for him? Thank you. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.